and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we come this evening to the church at Sardis. Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received or how you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, let's pray one final time asking for God's help. Heavenly Father, we come to your word uh, uh, inadequate to understand uh, the truths therein and to apply them to our lives. And so we come asking for you to send your spirit to work in our midst uh, to, Lord, uh, you might uh, forgive us of our sins and you might give us special insight and, and your spirit to be working. That as you search uh, the minds and the hearts, Lord Jesus, you would search ours tonight. And any place, Lord, where we have soiled our garments or, or we have... Uh, need attention and alertness and watchfulness that you might awaken that in us this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sardis was known for being a well-fortified city. It, it had a very large uh, citadel type uh, of, of geography where it was. And, and so from a military standpoint, it was seen as sort of impenetrable. That was until it was penetrated uh, in 547 by the Persians under Cyrus. That the city was 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 under siege, but in many ways, this this the Sardians were uh, they didn't think they would ever be overtaken because the terrain to get into the city was was insurmountable. Plus, there was an ancient prophecy that said the city would never be overtaken. And Cyrus surrounded the city and laid siege. And there was one section of the city that really didn't get much uh, attention and and guard because they thought, well, the terrain is is just, uh, there's no way that anyone. And so they didn't pay attention to that side. And and a soldier eventually discovered you can ascend there, and the city was eventually overtaken. And that happened to the city again later on, too. So they they became uh, proud, and in their their hubris, they, they became slack. They, they lost their ability, they lost their alertness, and to pay attention and to, to correctly guard this city, and they were overtaken. And ironically, some 600 years later, the church in Sardis, from a spiritual perspective, sort of took on a similar uh, perspective. That they failed to maintain their alertness, and, and they were overtaken. And, and, and we're entering grave spiritual compromise. And Jesus tells them to wake up. And so we come tonight to Sardis. Uh, if I were to title this message, we might call it Sleepy Sardis. So the church address there in your outline. Sardis was 40 miles southeast of Thyatira that we looked at last week. 50 miles directly east of Smyrna. It was at the junction of many uh, of the road systems met there. 
And as I noted, it had this great fortress, uh, a citadel, uh, that was, uh, from a military standpoint, impenetrable. There was a Jewish population that that went back many years uh, to the city of Sardis. And we get from Sardis in the Christian church a a famous second century leader uh, named Melito, Melito of Sardis. And he is important, a writer for his affirmation, uh, early Christian affirmation of the Old Testament canon. And so uh, in terms of the cultural, religious background, and all of that is very similar uh, to whatever we've uh, discussed in these other churches. Of it, it is a Greco-Roman city. It's full of all the paganisms and temptations of any other city. So that's the church addressed. Secondly now, the characteristic of Christ emphasized. Jesus says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We've met this uh, term, seven spirits, before, and uh, and that came in chapter 1. That in the midst of John's greeting to the church, greeting from the one who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So we noted that the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit uh, there. And the seven stars, we learned at the end of chapter 1 that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And we noted that uh, we don't quite know exactly what this is, but likely uh, this is sort of an apocalyptic way of, of addressing this issue of, of an angel uh, that is sort of uh, the in-between between these churches. That as John's revelation came in verse 1 from God to Jesus Christ uh, and then through an angel to John, that we have in an apocalyptic way this, this mediatory uh, stage. And so the seven angels, the point here is the seven angels are deeply connected with each of the seven churches. And the Holy Spirit, as well, is deeply connected with these churches. That each of these letters begins with an address to the angel of the church and ends with, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so it's sort of sandwiching that is. So both of these uh, are a reference to something that is closely connected with Christ's church. And, and, and what's the significance? What is, what is brought out here about Christ? And I think it's to show us that Jesus is Lord of his church. He, he possesses, he has the seven spirits, he has the seven angels, meaning it is the spirit of Christ that indwells these churches. And, and, and he has these churches in his hand. He, he has the seven angels in his, in his hand. He has the seven stars in his hand, we're told, in chapter 1. And so Jesus is Lord of his church. He, 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 is, in, he is sovereign. He is in charge. And, and we see here that this church is dying, and the only way for this church to live is through Christ's life-giving spirit to, to work among this congregation. And so that is why this, this characteristic of Christ is emphasized. Third point, and, and, and be careful here, it's the correction and call to repentance. And you may be used to now thinking we, we, we do the commendation first, and then we do the correction and call to repentance. Well, the order is changed in this uh, church, that Jesus directly begins to rebuke of this church even before noting uh, some good that is going on there. So there in verse 1, Jesus says, I know your works. Once again, this is Jesus who searches the minds and hearts and gives to each according to their works. And so Jesus says, I know your works here. And, and what, what does he know about this? You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. Jesus says you have a reputation, you have a name 
for being alive. Uh, among whom? Who, who is that reputation among? Was it the citizens of the city that they had a good reputation uh, among these uh, fellow Sardians? That, oh, we're not Christians, but they're Christians and we, we respect them. Less possible, but more likely they had a reputation among the other churches and likely the same ones that we are addressing uh, here in the seven letters of being a good church. We, we, we love Sardis. It's a good church. They're, they're, they're a healthy congregation. They're a, they're a vibrant, living congregation. Jesus says, although that's your reputation, in reality you're dead. What a contrast. Everyone else thinks you're alive, but I actually know that you're dead. We couldn't have a, a, a polar opposites. Although the Pharisees' issue was, was hypocrisy, it's similarly, Jesus said, you paint your tomb. On the outside, it looks beautiful. But, but on the inside, it's full of dead man's bones. But uh, they're not quite dead. And so, so this is maybe a bit of a, a, a hyperbole here. And, and what the hyperbole is setting the contrast for us. And it's setting the trajectory that, that because Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains as it is a, and is about to die. So you, you are practically dead. And you're on your way to be completely dead if you don't wake up. But there, there's a little bit of life in you. It's like a soldier in the, in the battlefield coming upon a soldier that's, that's been wounded and, and he looks dead, but you get close and, and you, he, his heart's still beating. And, and you immediately get him the medical attention he needs because if, if you don't do something now, if you don't strengthen what remains, he is going to die. And so Jesus gives this warning. That, that this church needs to, to wake up. It's in a spiritual coma. It's in the spiritual ICU, as it were. You may have had the experience of, of, of meeting someone in the ICU and, it's, and they're very, very sick and, and you come away and you, they, they just look like death. They're that close. They're, 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 they're barely hanging on. And that, that's where this church is, spiritually. Jesus says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Your works are incomplete. Now, interesting, Jesus doesn't say this church was overtaken by a, by a great false teaching like we've seen in the past two churches. It's, it's not as if Jezebel is having influence here or the teaching of Balaam or the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's not some false doctrine that's overtaken this church. On the other extreme, it's not like uh, the church at Ephesus where they, they focused uh, solely on one thing and they were really good at that and they left their love behind in their zeal uh, for the truth. No, this church uh, wasn't on either of those uh, trajectories, which which makes us think that that they just sort of had a, a spiritual dullness, and in fact that that's what we think because Jesus repeats a, a few times this word for wake up, or or be alert, or be watchful, meaning you've fallen asleep, you've sort of fallen into a, a spiritual lull. And you, you've dozed off, and it's actually killing you. Your, your inactivity is, is killing you. You have this peacetime mindset in, in, a, in a combat zone. You're playing checkers in the middle of no man's land. And unless you wake up, you're going to die. So he says in verse, verse 3, Remember, remember Jesus uses this 
recalling your, your former work. Remember then what you received, or, or I think better, how you received. Remember how you received and heard. Remember how you received this gospel message. Remember how you heard it. Remember how you believed it. And the works you did uh, uh, in accordance with that belief. And go keep it and repent of your sin. Repent of your lethargy. Because if not, I'm coming like a thief. And you won't know what time that I'm coming. Jesus coming in judgment. Jesus saying, if, if you're not going to wake up and strengthen what remains, I'm coming to do your funeral. As he told the church at Ephesus, I'm going to come, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And this, this idea of coming as a thief is... is uh, Familiar in the Old Testament or the New Testament, so it could be a reference as well to Jesus' second coming and judgment as well. But what's the exhortation to this church? Wake up. Be alert. Get back to doing those things that you used to do. And this uh, brings to our attention a theme that we see throughout the, the New Testament of, of we need to be watchful. We need to be on the alert. We, we need to be awake and sober-minded. So I want to view a few passages here just to get this in our mind. This was in Jesus' teaching. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse 42, and following, Jesus says, But no, verse 42, Therefore stay awake. Same exhortation here. For you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the same motif here. You're not, you don't know when Jesus is coming. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master finds will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus says, don't, uh, you don't know when I'm coming and so be faithful and what does the faithful servant do? He does what his Lord asks him to do. I, the faithful servant, give food to my servants at a proper time. And you're, if you do that, you will be blessed at, at my coming. What does the wicked servant do? The master's delayed. So I'm not going to treat his servants like he wants them to be treated. I'm going to treat them how I want to, I want to treat them. So I'm going to beat them, and then I'm going to uh, eat and drink and get drunk and, 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 and live it up because uh, he's delayed. I'm not worried, and then I'll straighten up when he comes back and right before, and, and it'll be fine. But Jesus says that he doesn't know when the master's coming, and the master finds him not doing what he's been told to do, and, and he... He cuts them in pieces and puts them with the hypocrites in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the faith, as opposed to the faithful slave who does what his master has called him to do. But Jesus in his teaching also knew that our flesh is weak. Our flesh is attracted towards uh, Rest and leisure. And so we, we have uh, exhortations from Jesus in other places. 
In Luke 21, 34, Jesus says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Be on the alert, because it's very easy to get weighed down with the cares of life and to get off the path of righteousness and, and to become easily compromised. So, so be on the alert against this. Where Jesus told his disciples when they were praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples couldn't keep awake to pray at Jesus' greatest hour of need. So that's Jesus' teaching on this idea of being watchful. Other, a few other New Testament passages. 1 Corinthians 16.13. Be watchful, Paul says. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Also, we see this uh, in 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That Paul, in discussing the day of the Lord, says, you, you don't, the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so we have this motif again. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. We know the Lord is coming at a time we don't know. And we know the Lord, and therefore we should keep awake. Meaning, we, we should be found doing those things that God has called us to do and not distracted when He comes. Revelation again uh, references this in chapter 16, verses 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Jesus says. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So Jesus says to this church, now's not the time to sleep. Now's not the time to be relaxed and just go with the flow. This is a, there is a war going on and you need to be alert and you need to wake up and you need to strengthen what, it, what remains and is about to die. That said of, of Dwight Eisenhower during World War II, <clears throat> as he was commanding troops from December 7, 1941 to May 8, 1945, he only slept four hours a night, rarely went out to eat at a restaurant, and drank eight or more cups of coffee a day. Now, you shouldn't do this perpetually or you're not going to live very long, but why take such uh, extraneous measures? Well, there's a war. And when there's a war going on, there's no time to sleep. That, that he needed to be uh, commanding troops and, and understanding and, and processing information and, and making wise decisions. And the same is true. There, there is a war going on. Our, our rest is, is in the time to come. And, and so we, we must take measures to be awake, to be alert. And so this church was not, and Jesus calls them to repent. Next, the commendation given. Yet not everyone was asleep in Sardis, thankfully. Verse 4, Jesus says, Yet you, 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 you have still a few names in Sardis, 
People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus uses this uh, language of a soiled garment. It's this uh, purity imagery that he has used before, that we've seen this in the two letters before this, that sexual morality was... uh, not only was it a reference to real sexual morality, but it was a metaphor for religious infidelity to God. And so that imagery is picked up again in, in a positive way here, uh, that this, this idea of, of soiled in this word here is also used of sexual immorality as well. It's used later, too, in Revelation chapter 14, Verse 4, John gets the vision of the 144,000. We'll meet those in in chapter 7. They reappear in chapter 14 here. They have the name uh, of the Father written on their foreheads. And of these, in verse 14, verse 4, it says, It is these who have not defiled, same, same word, these have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from the mankind as firstfruits of God and the Lamb. And in their mouths there was no life found, for they are blameless. What's the imagery? Are these real, literal virgins? No. But... They're virgins, and it's used as a, meta- uh, a metaphor in the sense of they have not partaken of the world's sexual immorality. And that sexual morality that includes idolatry and all various types of compromise for faith. It's interesting, it's noted here in verse 5, in their mouth was no lie found. So they didn't participate in the lies of the world. They weren't liars, they were truth tellers. They were true virgins. They had a level of purity that extended in their lives as followers of Christ. So the, the, the believers there in Sardis, those few who remain, they're described the same way. They've not soiled their garments. They're, 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 they're virgins in terms of the world's belief. So that's just a hint that these two are described the same way, so perhaps they're the same uh, reference point of Christians. And remember in, in the letters here that it's the believers that overcome. So the ones whose garments aren't soiled are, are the ones that, are, that prove themselves to be true believers. Believers overcome, unbelievers don't overcome at the end of the day. So that's the commendation given. There are some who who take the fight against sin and conformity to to the culture seriously. They've not defiled their garments. They've not participated and just sort of become lax and sleepy. But they are worthy. Jesus says they are worthy. So that's the commendation. Next, the consolation for heeding the correction. Jesus says of these who haven't soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white. And in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And this, this is sort of the opposite of last week we talked about uh, the punishment fits the crime. Well, so does the reward. You've not defiled yourself, you've kept yourself, you kept your garments pure, I will give you pure white Garments. And so uh, it's a positive imagery of you reap what you sow. And we see the saints in the book of Revelation appearing in white garments. 
In chapter 6, verse 11, there are saints under the altar. They're, they're crying, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood from those who dwell on the earth? And Jesus says they were given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. In chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. So chapter 7 is John's vision of the 144,000. He hears the number 144,000. He turns and sees a multitude that's innumerable, and they're clothed in white garments. In Revelation 19, verse 14, It says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, that is Jesus, on white horses. So the saints throughout the book of Revelation are pictured as as wearing white, and that symbolizes their holiness, their purity, their devotion to God, to the Lamb. So Jesus says, I will give you You've shown yourselves to be pure. I will give you a pure white garment. Furthermore, he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. That the book of life is a book that appears both in the book of Revelation and throughout the the New Testament that we see in chapter 20. Uh, this is maybe the more uh, famous passage, passage of this with this in. That John sees a great white throne. He sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so if your name is in the book of life, you receive eternal life. If your name is not in the book of life, you receive judgment from other books that leads to your condemnation. So the book of life appears again in chapter 13, verse 8 and 21, 27. A few references in the New Testament to this are found in Philippians 4, 3. Paul says, I exhort you, I ask you, true companion, help these women, this Euodia and Syntyche, who, who were having trouble getting along. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellows, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul's used, this is a reference to the saints. The saints' names are in the book of life. Jesus, in, in Luke 10, the, the disciples, they go out and they, they're casting out demons and they're all excited about the power they're, they're seeing. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your name are written in heaven. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 23 where it discusses, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven to God the judge of all. So, so the point here is that the saints' names are in the book of life, that this is the register of the righteous. It is the roll call of heaven. That if your name is written in the book of life, you have eternal life. If it is not in the book of life, you do not have eternal life. So Jesus says to the conqueror, I'll never blot your name out of the book of life. 
Which begs the question, can your name be blotted out of the book of life? Which is another way of saying, can one who is a believer become an unbeliever? Can you lose your salvation? And, and we, we answer that, no. And, and, and we, we hold to that, the security and perseverance of the believer. And we don't need to defend that here. But we do have to, we do have to discuss this because uh, why would Jesus say, I will not blot out your name from the book of life if it's impossible to blot the names out of the book of life? So what is going on here? Well, it's important to remember, all saints and only the saints conquer. Only the saints are in the book of life. And none are ever blotted out. If you're in the book of life, you're going to make it to heaven. So that, that's true. That's theologically true. We, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. That if you're a Christian, you, you, will, you will make it to glory. It's impossible to ultimately fall away as a true believer, theologically. So why, uh, why say I will never blot out your, your name from the book of life if that's not actually a risk? It's like in the book of Hebrews. Why warn against falling away if it's actually impossible for a believer to fall away? And, and I think this is helpful for us because we'll see that perseverance is a, is a theme in the book of Revelation. So it's helpful to reflect on that. Well, here in, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus gives real and true exhortations to a mixed audience. That there are believers and unbelievers receiving these exhortations. And for the believer, God sovereignly uses these exhortations to cause them to persevere. And the unbeliever ultimately won't persevere, uh, no matter what exhortation is given to to them. For example, there may be a believer among us tonight, a true believer... We, we would say, you know, theologically, you are a believer. Your name is in the book of heaven. But you are, you are on, you're in terms of grave sin right now. You, you, have, you have compromised your faith. You, you are living in open rebellion. But you're under the preach word and you hear these exhortations that if you don't conquer, if you don't repent... Uh, you, you will be cast into outer darkness. And that's a real threat. That's a real exhortation. And the Spirit of God uses that in the believer to bring about conviction and repentance. Where if they were an unbeliever, they, they would not take heed to that exhortation and they would ultimately uh, continue in their unbelief. So, so we see things, we can step back and see things broadly and, and, and theologically and say saints persevere, but in time and space, God uses means and, and He uses these exhortations, even negative exhortations, to sovereignly call His saints to perseverance because saints ultimately persevere. Now that perseverance doesn't gain the saint's salvation. It proves the salvation of the saint that was wrought in their heart by God. So it's impossible for Jesus to blot the names of his servants out of the book of life. But it's also impossible for a true believer to continually, to continue perpetually in unfaithfulness and in unrepentant sin. So Jesus said, if you conquer, If you continue holding fast to me, I will never blot your name out. He's using a negative term to affirm a positive thing. You will have life. 
And so that's the importance of perseverance here. So Jesus says, I won't blot your name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name, the conqueror's name, before my Father and before his angels. Jesus had uh, noted this in his own teaching. In, In Matthew 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, you, you hold fast to me, I will, I will hold fast to you. I, I will confess your name before my, my, my Father and his angel. This is my saint, and he is conquered. And see how this, this metaphor works holistically here. Jesus says, you hold fast to me, I'll give you a white robe. And that white robe symbolizes purity and righteousness. And that righteousness does not come from the individual wearing the robe. It comes from the one who gives the robe. That the saints ultimately conquer, not in their own strength and power and righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ and in the work of redemption that was purchased for them in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus says, I will give you my righteousness... I will not blot your name out of the book of life, and I will confess your name before uh, my Father and his angels. Here are my children. Receive your reward of eternal life. What a great reward that is. So that's, that is Jesus' reward to those who conquer, who hold fast to Christ. Not in their own strength, but by faith in Him. So finally now, the connection to our lives and church. There's really one exhortation from this that uh, is the same exhortation to the church. Stay awake. Be alert. Be watchful. Don't fall asleep. That's a good exhortation on a Sunday night, right? Don't fall asleep. What does that mean to stay awake? Three things to help us understand this more. First, understand there's a war going on around you. And as we noted before... A wartime calls for wartime efforts of sacrificial, focused lifestyle. That we do things and go without things in wartime that we wouldn't normally do in other times. That we think, uh, if we think of World War II again, think of the way the American citizens lived during that time. They, they, they gladly accepted uh, the rationings for most American citizens. They, they gladly lived a more simple lifestyle so that their resources could be preserved and go towards this uh, war effort. That, that saw young men stand in line to, to sign up, to enlist, and to serve in the army, uh, knowing that they could possibly die, and many did. And they, they sacrificed their life for a righteous cause. And so the same is true in our, our, our spiritual lives, that we need to stay awake. There's a war going on. Peter tells us that Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to sink his teeth into believers. So that is not with that that enemy uh, abound. Now is not the time to relax, particularly in in our Western society, where where we have lots of uh, affluence and wealth, and there is a particular temptation to to uh, indulge and become. Uh, uh, Drunk, as it were, with the world's goods and stuff. But the scripture calls us to be sober-minded. 
We must deny ourselves. We must have that wartime uh, method, uh, mindset, as it were, and take sacrificial actions of love, good works. When is the last time prayer has felt sacrificial for you? You got tired. You you had to labor to pray for the cause of the gospel. Maybe a test for us or to help us is, is we should practice some sort of fasting uh, to, to wean ourselves from, from the things of this world as a way of focusing our minds and hearts on, on the Lord. Secondly, beware of the ease of defilement. I've heard the illustration of the white glove. Take a white glove, rub it against a a dirty surface, and and what happens? Well, the whiteness doesn't come out uh, onto the dirty surface and make it cleaner. The dirty surface comes onto the white and defiles it. And so as we live in this world, it's very easy to imbibe and and, and take in the defilements of our culture. That temptations abound to to soil our garments, as Jesus said. And and what what does the psalmist in Psalm 24 tell us? Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. We should keep, uh, seek to keep a pure heart before God. And, 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 and our own hearts are, are, are at times distorted and provide their own level of temptation, but yet we live in a culture that, that bombards us with more. And, and I think one particular uh, point of application is here is just in, in the realm of sexual purity that the culture seeks to elicit all sorts of sexual desires. It's very easy if you're not alert and on guard to be overcome in this battle with that. We see this in, in just the, the rampant rise of pornography use even among Christians. And we discussed this a little bit in, in Sunday school. It's pervasive. It's, it's, it's easily accessible. And, it, and it's destructive to the souls of Christians. So, so we, we must take wartime measures to fight uh, such defiling measures. That if you have to, to throw your, your laptop out in the trash and get a flip phone, then you have to do that. Because that is better uh, than defiling your soul. But there is hope, and, and, and maybe, maybe you, you feel overwhelmed now. Remember that, that Jesus says... Uh, you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from from all unrighteousness. That if if you're in this battle and your heart is is breaking over this, uh, that there is forgiveness. But we need to fight, and we need to fight with, with wartime, sacrificial, gritty effort. So beware of the ease of defilement. And thirdly, do what God has called you to do. The point of staying awake, the point of the wartime mentality is not a call for us to all quit our jobs and go to the mission field. Jesus is coming back, therefore, if i got to be found faithful, I, I better be evangelizing someone when he comes back. That's not, that's not the point. What is the faithful servant, Jesus says? 
He's found doing what his master told him to do. And we have seen that there is a a wide variety of Christian works that we need to be growing in on a regular basis. Those works of love and faith and service and endurance and in holiness and, yes, in evangelism and sharing. So, so don't, don't take this as, a, as just a need to, you know, be, enter the Christian ministry. Seek to grow in your obedience to all the commands of Scripture that you know. And if you are doing that, you will be found faithful when the Lord returns. The wicked slave says, I'm going to do what I want I'm going to go contrary to my master's desires. Don't be that wicked slave. Be the the faithful slave. God has called me to holiness, to love, to faith, to commitment to my local church, to seek to share the good news with those around him as God gives me means. To be a faithful worker. If you have a job, be be. Faithful at that job? I had a friend once, and, and he, he worked in, at that time in the business world. And he says, you know, he used most of his time at work to evangelize his co-workers. But he realized, and the Lord convicted him, well, you're not actually being a good witness because you're not doing your job. And the point was not to stop evangelizing, but it was, well, you better focus on doing a good job because that itself is an important testimony. And then as God gives you opportunity, evangelize. So this, don't feel like you're found unfaithful if you're at work when Jesus returns. That if you are seeking to work unto the Lord, you will be found faithful when he returns. And so there's a call here to vocational faithfulness. And maybe you're still deciding, I don't know what I, I want to do. Well, seek to grow in, in your obedience to all the revealed commands of Scripture. And, and then, I think as John MacArthur help, helpfully points us out, then do what you want after that. Because you're walking in the Spirit, and, and we just trust that, that God will, will guide your desires uh, to what is good and right. So the temptation uh, to sleep, to be, to be lax, is, is great upon us. So may God help us to stay awake and be found faithful when He returns. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this letter to the church at Sardis. We grieve to hear of this spiritual condition that was true of this church then, but we also grieve to know that this likely is is the reality in many congregations uh, today, that they may have a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. May that not be said of us, help us to to wake up, help us to be sober-minded, help us to be vigilant, and faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.